0: This is a Bloomberg Daybreak Special Report. I'm Nathan Hager.
1: I'm Amy Morris. President Trump has been admitted to the hospital to be treated for COVID-19. And coming up over the next hour, we'll examine the implications, the possibilities, and the path ahead for the White House.
0: Not only that, plus the political fallout with exactly one month till the election. That's all straight ahead. But first, let's get the very latest on the president's health. For that, we're joined this morning by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael. Good
2: morning. And medical specialists have elected to start Remdesivir, the therapy for President Donald Trump. That's according to a tweet from Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany that cites a statement from his physician. Trump has completed his first dose of the drug and is resting comfortably, according to the statement. And it goes on to say that he's not requiring any supplemental oxygen. Trump campaign senior advisor Corey Lewinowski spoke to ABC News Friday night saying the president is doing well and resting inside Walter Reed.
0: Knowing the president the way that I do, uh, I am certain that he was hesitant and wanted to stay at the White House, wanted to keep doing his day job. But uh, I think over uh, as an abundance of caution, the president acquiesced and decided to go up to Walter Reed today.
2: Well, wishes continue to come in for President Trump. Former President Barack Obama put politics aside. Michelle and I want to make sure that we acknowledge the President of the United States and the First Lady at a difficult time. Even when we're in the midst of big political battles uh, with with issues that uh, have a lot at stake, uh, that we're all Americans uh, and, and we're all human beings and and that we uh We want to make sure that everybody uh, is is healthy. The list of people in President Trump's circle who have contracted the coronavirus continues to grow. President Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, has tested positive for the coronavirus. Political said Stepien received his diagnosis yesterday and is experiencing mild flu-like symptoms. Former Trump campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway, has tested positive for COVID-19 and is experiencing mild symptoms. According to a tweet, Conway says she is in quarantine in consultation with her doctors and says, as always, my heart is with everyone affected by this global pandemic. Republican Senator Tom Tillis said he also has COVID-19. Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, also announced Friday that she tested positive, joining Trump, the first lady, top Trump aide, Hope Hicks, and numerous others. Stepien who joined Trump at Tuesday's first presidential debate plans to quarantine until he recovers. No one knows how, when, or from whom President Trump became infected with the coronavirus, nor is it known who, if any, has contracted the disease from him. Dr. John Brownstein.
3: This tells us that there is a concern about the contacts that the president had in the days leading up to the positive diagnosis.
2: Global News, 24 hours a day, on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg. Nathy.
1: All right. Thank you, Michael. Let's get more now on the president's health. We are joined by Lauren Sauer, the professor of emergency medicine at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Lauren, want to thank you for taking the time with us this morning. And we just heard Michael Barr reporting that the president is being treated with remdesivir and he doesn't necessarily need oxygen at this point. Could you just tell us a bit about what remdesivir does, what it's about, and what that tells you at this point?
4: Yeah, so um, it's... Thanks for having me. It's interesting to see the president starting on remdesivir. Um, the preliminary results that we have on remdesivir are good for hospitalized patients. It's interesting because it's not an outpatient therapy. It's not something that's approved for um, use in the outpatient setting, which may be one of the reasons um, why he is has been taken to the hospital. Um, we also saw that he... Um, was put on the monoclonal antibody cocktail from Regeneron. Um, so all of these together lead us to believe that he is probably ill. Although um, obviously not his, you know, not in any way related to his medical care. I'm not in any way related to his medical care. But these these novel therapeutics that we're seeing being used um, are still experimental. And so I think what what we have to understand here is he's getting everything we have. but that there's
0: not much there. Of course, what we've heard from the White House is that the president's symptoms are mild. Uh, We've gotten pretty vague information uh, from officials at the White House about the president's condition. What does the type of medicine that he's getting now that you've just laid out tell you about potentially what his condition could be?
4: Um, Well, remdesivir... Uh, was one of the first drugs, actually the first drug to show moderate effectiveness in improving um, hospitalized patient outcomes. And so uh, it was given primarily to hospitalized patients who had more advanced stages of COVID-19. Um, and and so, you know, you're, you're already in a more advanced stage when you're in the hospital. Those patients um, showed uh, modest improvement in recovery um, you know, getting out of the hospital earlier, getting their symptoms reduced um, compared to the placebo arm of that study. And so um, for me, what I would imagine is that his symptoms were bad enough not only to warrant taking him to the hospital, possibly um, that, he, the, that his doctors thought he might need oxygen um, or that he was experiencing lethargy or shortness of breath. Um, and so they wanted him to be in a place that he could be stable and that he could receive these inpatient therapies. Um, It has to be administered by IV, and so uh, it has to be administered, uh, you know, primarily in the hospital.
1: I wanted to know about how this disease progresses. We've been told that the president's in good spirits. He intends to work as he can from the hospital while he is there, but when the disease progresses, when COVID-19 takes a hold, it can move fast. Can you give us more insight and context about the progress of the disease and how long it might take to recover versus how quickly it can get worse?
4: Sure. So um, generally speaking, um, you see um, symptoms uh, two to three uh, days out uh, to varying degrees. So you can have... um, Many people just have low symptoms in those first few days, and then the disease begins to progress worse. For some people, it obviously does not progress. Some people don't get symptoms at all. Um, But we look for those symptoms to show up two days to two weeks into the course of their disease, um, or people to test positive in that space after exposure. And then um, as the disease progresses, what you're going to see is um, increased shortness of breath, increased uh, oxygenation challenges, um, the cough getting worse, muscle aches and body aches getting worse, the lethargy getting worse, which worries about, makes us worry here in this case about um, confusion, and then um, if the trouble breathing or the the chest. Pain gets worse. Um, it may mean lung involvement, and that oftentimes can lead to the need for supplemental oxygen. So, oxygen in the hospital, and whether that's through um, a nasal cannula, like that that you just wear, or um, in in the worst cases, intubation or mechanical ventilation, and possibly um, ECMO. Um, that's when we, these patients can get really sick and they can stay really sick for a long time. And so you want to sort of get control of the disease long before people need um, supplemental oxygen. And we're, we're learning more about these patients every day. So, um, you know, remember that this is a disease that was completely new to us just uh, seven months ago and I'm um, oh, sorry, uh, <laughs> 11 months ago. And right. um you know, so the the disease progression, we're still seeing cases where it's different than what we believe we know to be true so far. Um, and so it is a little worrisome in a general sense to see, to hear about his disease progression happening so quickly. But again, we don't, we're not being given the full picture or we don't know if we're being given the full picture. So it may be that um, he was feeling unwell prior to when we're hearing about him beginning to feel unwell.
0: We're speaking with Lauren Sauer, professor of emergency medicine at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Of course, we saw a domino effect just about of uh, White House aides and other officials within the White House and on Capitol Hill announcing yesterday uh, that they, too, had come down with the coronavirus. Given the incubation period of this disease, how many more potential cases could we expect to see come out of the White House? Are you concerned at all about the protocols that have been in place at the White House over the last several months.
4: I think many of us have been concerned about the protocols. Um, you know, I think the biggest lesson that um, I hope many people learn from this um, and that we've been sort of talking about for a long time is that testing alone will not protect you from the coronavirus. Testing helps identify cases of coronavirus. Regular testing helps identify cases as early as possible. Um, but it doesn't protect you from the asymptomatic cases, oftentimes it doesn't protect you from um, getting the coronavirus if you're exposed to someone who's just too early in their disease course to test positive. And so <clears throat> what what we've seen in the White House and from this administration is a lack of, of social distancing, a lack of mask wearing. I think um, all things are sort of starting to point to this event in the Rose Garden Um people sitting shoulder to shoulder, and yes, while it was outside, when you're that close, um, you can still have high-risk exposures. So I hope, if nothing else, that we, we take away from this um, that that these other measures, these, ma- these wearing the masks, doing the public, doing the social distancing, are critical for keeping us safe. And I, I think we will see many more people... Um, I hope not, truly, but I, I think we will see many more people from this event and, and from this sort of bubble of the White House get sick um, or test positive. And so uh, I'm imagining that the testing has increased significantly in this group, but that, um, that, that we will see more positives to come.
1: Professor Sauer, we only have about a minute to go, but I did want to get a quick question in about what happens next. Let's say the president recovers, he's okay, he is uh, discharged from the hospital. What might he be dealing with after getting over the virus?
4: Um, We've heard of profound weakness in people for quite some time after COVID cases, people saying that they don't, they kind of just don't feel quite right. Um, And, you know, there are these patients who are experiencing what some are calling long COVID, which is a, a very protracted, symptomatic um, course of the of the disease. So, long COVID um, means you experience your symptoms for a very extended period of time. You don't fully recover, um, and and the CDC and other agencies are actively working on what that means for the disease for people who have experienced the disease. He could feel short of breath. For a very long time, uh, which would make doing things like standing for long periods of time at a debate really challenging. Um, and even and if he, you know, if he, for example, progresses to the ICU, that could mean that could mean he's feeling, you know, that that his recovery in the hospital alone, let alone out of the hospital, could could last for a very long time.
0: Lauren Sauer, Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Again, thank you so much for your insights on this early Saturday morning. Much appreciated. And coming up next on this Bloomberg Daybreak special report, the political fallout. Terry Haynes, founder of Pangea Policy, will join us to break down the situation and what it means for November 3rd. This is Bloomberg. This is a Bloomberg Daybreak Special Report. It six seventeen on Wall Street. I'm Nathan Hager.
1: I'm Amy Morris. President Trump has been admitted to the hospital to be treated for COVID-19. It's a development that threatens to upend the president's re-election campaign in the weeks ahead. Let's get more on that in a moment. But first, the latest on the health of the president. For that, we're joined live by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Michael.
2: Thank you very much, Amy. President Donald Trump arrived at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on Friday to be treated over the coming days for COVID-19, signaling growing concern about the severity of his illness. Medical specialists have elected to start remdesivir the therapy for President Trump. After leaving the White House by helicopter, Trump tweeted a video in which he said, I think I'm doing very well. The President went on to say that we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well. Former Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway says she has tested positive for COVID 19 and is experiencing mild symptoms. Global news 24 hours a day on air and on Bloomberg QuickTake, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg. Nathan. Okay, Michael, thank you.
0: While the president receives treatment at Walter Reed, the political calendar stops for no one and nothing. We are exactly one month away this morning from the election. For the political implications of all of this, we're joined now by Terry Haynes, founder of Pangea Policy it's sort of funny to imagine terry that just a you know, couple of days ago we were talking about the president's debate performance the supreme court nomination uh hopes that the president would be able to pivot from the coronavirus and now it seems like we can't avoid talking about anything but this
5: good morning nathan and yeah those were good times right uh <laughs> so long ago uh, yeah, it's uh, we can't pivot from talking about anything but, but this, but uh, uh, we probably are because uh, that this is all going to take place from now on out uh, into a larger political context, and frankly, one that's uh, one that's very tight. Uh, you have uh, in battleground states, you have uh, Vice President Biden up a cumulative kind of margin of error about three and a half percent uh... the president uh, as of this morning is doing marginally better about a half a point or so better than uh... secretary clinton was in twenty sixteen and you have a lot of polls suggesting that even the national uh, the national outlook, which uh, I think is a beauty contest and nothing more, but uh, it kind of ranges between four and seven points. So we were at we were at a moment where uh, the race was tightening, and uh, will probably remain so. I think, frankly, for the uh, for the for, for the rest of the campaigns.
1: Terry, the president's diagnosis perhaps not moving the needle among voters, but is it moving the needle among lawmakers? I'm wondering about talks with the stimulus. Is there still any chance that we'll be getting one? Has it changed those odds?
5: Good morning, Amy. And I've I've been bearish on the stimulus for over a month now, and uh, I remain so. I I raised my odds. I was at uh, as recently as a week or so ago was at about 10%. I raised them to forty percent, but I raised them to forty percent the other day, uh largely because of the possibility of political stupidity which uh, which you know is always lurking out there but uh, uh, but I think the what you have is a couple of things going: one is that you have both parties splintered uh Republicans we know are splintered because some don't want a bill at all and some want a small bill uh Democrats are also splintered. the reason why. It, Speaker Pelosi's at the table has everything to do with uh, her vulnerable centrists who are actually are the uh, are the majority in the house uh 30 or so centrists to a majority of roughly 15 uh saying look you know we're you know we're getting beat up out here our our districts need it we have to do something so all of a sudden Pelosi comes down by a trillion dollars from a uh, a number that she didn't want to come down from before uh, but, you know, it's not, you know, the that's the, the political signal that sends uh, is that Republicans shouldn't make a deal, uh, because if the House is in play uh, as a result of these uh, these folks feeling pressure, well, then, you know, maybe they can pick up some seats, maybe they can pick up the House majority. It doesn't take much. So, you know, how I look at this overall is Pelosi doing what she can to get a deal for her centrists, uh, Mnuchin and the president wanting to, to do whatever they can to uh, tell the markets they 're continuing to work on it, and if they can get Pelosi to cave they you know they you know they 'd be happy to do it uh, but Republicans uh, still not in their political interest to actually do something so i 'm still bearish on this before the election i th- I certainly think a deal gets uh, gets done after the election. Finally, I want to say to you that Pelosi did something important yesterday that I think supports my theory, which is uh, announced that she would agree to an airline bailout separate from the stimulus overall. Uh, anytime a politician is is breaking off a large piece of her leverage and using it uh, uh, as a standalone, uh, that tells you that the the bigger bill is probably in trouble.
0: So we might get a piecemeal approach on stimulus, perhaps. Yeah. What about the uh, Supreme Court? confirmation fight coming up in less than two weeks now. A couple of members of the Senate Judiciary Committee have also come down with the coronavirus. Does that put uh, Senate Judiciary Chairman Lindsey Graham's calendar in jeopardy?
5: Uh, to right now, I think it does not. Uh my I, I still remain of the view that uh... judge barrett is about seventy percent likely to be confirmed uh... you know republicans have enough votes they seem like they're all going to be in favor of barrett even though they quite properly uh, say that they're gonna hold their uh... Hold their powder until after the hearings uh... they've confirmed her three three years ago so you know there's a high degree of confidence that they will continue uh... along that line uh, but at the same time, the Senate Judiciary Committee can do virtual hearings uh, and, you know, and, and pipe in senators virtually. Uh, they've done that before. Other Senate committees have done that before. So uh, the mere fact of a couple of lawmakers testing positive, uh, regardless of party or anything else, uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't disqualify those hearings from going forward. And, you know, the real question is uh, whether you're going to have enough votes physically on the floor of the Senate in a in a few weeks, because uh, the Senate has not to date put virtual voting in place. So uh, they're going to need to be present and accounted for whenever they vote. and, uh, And that's the real sticking point.
1: All right. We have been talking with Terry Haynes, founder of Pangea Policy. Terry, want to thank you for joining us this morning with your insight into this, looking into how the president's health right now and being hospitalized at Walter Reed uh, is impacting everything from the election, but also the odds of getting a stimulus and what is going on with the Supreme Court. We're going to keep an eye on that for you. And much more still to come on this Bloomberg Daybreak special report. Coming up, we're going to talk about the president's treatment. We'll be talking with Andy Peckos from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He'll be joining us to talk more about the president's condition, the type of treatment that is underway at Walter Reed Medical Center, and perhaps what might, may be facing the president healthwise once he recovers. I'm Amy Morris alongside Nathan Hager and Michael Barr. Stay with us. It is 625 on Wall Street. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. It is 6.30 on Wall Street. I'm Nathan Hager.
1: I'm Amy Morris. President Trump is at Walter Reed Medical Center receiving treatment for COVID-19 after his diagnosis yesterday morning. Coming up, a look at the range of treatment options available to the president. But first, let's get the latest on his health. For that, we're joined live by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Michael.
2: Thank you very much, Amy. Democrat Joe Biden is offering sympathy to President Donald Trump over his coronavirus diagnosis. While casting the moment as a reminder of the health crisis facing the United States, shortly after the White House announced that Trump would spend a few days at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, the Biden campaign said it would take down its negative advertising. Biden said from the battleground state of Michigan that it cannot be a partisan moment and that Americans must come together as a nation.
6: I want to say God bless you. May God protect the first family and every family that's dealing with this virus. And may God protect our troops.
2: Global News 24 hours a day on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg. Amy.
1: All right. Thank you, Michael. We turn now from politics to medicine taking a look at the condition of the president and the treatments at his disposal at Walter Reed. For that, we are joined by Andy Pekosch, the professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And I want to thank you for taking the time with us this morning. And just right off the bat, we've been told this morning the president is being treated with remdesivir and doesn't need oxygen at this point. I want to get your insight into what that tells you about being treated with this drug and if it uh, is one of the better drugs out there, if it's experimental, where do we stand with this?
7: Yeah, so, you know, at the early stages of an infection, which is where the president is right now, treatments should be focused on things that will directly affect the virus. Uh, Remdesivir is one of the drugs that has shown a good signal of efficacy in terms of reducing virus replication, again, particularly if it's given early after diagnosis. Uh, The president also received an antibody cocktail from a company called Regeneron, which is, again, specifically designed antibodies that are going to neutralize the virus and lower the amount of virus that's in the president's system. So both of those things are perfectly acceptable, perfectly reasonable, and
0: probably recommended things um, at this early stage of his disease. What do we know about the effectiveness of those drugs specifically? We've heard the names a lot, but uh, you know these, these uh, treatments are so new that I think maybe a lot of our listeners might not know exactly just how effective these medications are, uh, what the uh, clinical proof behind them is. Both medications are relatively new. They're in their
7: experimental phase right now and in various phases of clinical trials to get the data that's needed to make them more widely available to individuals. Um, we know that they're both relatively safe from the signatures that we've already seen in their, in their clinical trials. And that's, of course, the first and most important thing. Um, and again, the, both have, have evidence of, of efficacy in small-scale trials, but not the trials needed to um, really make these uh, treatments um, widespread in the, in the population. So this is probably one of those safe things to do, it, and it's best to do this early. Um, there's very, right now we think that there's very little downside with either of these treatments and a potentially big upside, and I think that's where the decision for uh, treating him has come in.
1: I want to look into what may be happening next, and, and we've talked about this before as far as antibodies and vaccination. There are several people in the White House who have tested positive, the President, the First Lady, Hope Hicks, Bill Stepien, Kellyanne Conway, those numbers may actually increase. So from your point of view, can you, let's, let's say they all recover, will they then present with antibodies and then have some form of protection?
7: Yeah, so the data right now is um, not, incre- not very clear as to how well-protected you are after your first infection. Um, we and other groups all across the country have been studying people who've recovered from infection, and we see a very wide response. Um, some people maintain high levels of antibodies. Some people's antibodies drop down relatively low. Um, many people develop other arms of their immune system called cellular immunity to relatively strong levels, too. Uh, the most important thing to remember is, you know, your body's immune system will always remember the first infection. So even if there isn't a good signature from these from uh, in people who are who, who uh, recover from an infection, their body will remember that. They'll have what we call a memory response. The next time they see the virus, their antibodies and other things will will boost up much much more faster. So there really isn't going to be. We can't say right now that a person who is infected once can't ever get infected again, but there's a high probability that those people uh, will be in, uh, relatively resist- resistant from infection, and if they do get infected, they'll probably suffer much more uh, less severe symptoms
0: president is 74 years old. Uh, the last time he had a physical, he weighed more than 240 pounds. Given those comorbidities, Professor Pekosh, what kind of lasting effect could this virus have on his body after he recovers?
7: Yeah, so this, this long-term effect of the disease is something that uh, is being documented right now um, in many individuals who are infected. Um, and those can in- include fatigue. They can include um, 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 heart uh, issues and a a whole range of other issues. Now, they appear in a a small percentage of individuals, but not a a, a percentage that we should ignore. Um, All of those things are are, are things that we don't know how to treat yet. um, And we don't understand how how the virus is causing the these uh, long-term symptoms and this disease in other organs outside of the, the respiratory tract. You know, we have a pretty good idea what's going on within the respiratory tract in the early stages of infection, but why the virus is causing such a, we call, systemic disease, a disease in other organs, is still unclear.
1: Uh, very briefly, I wanted to get into the spread of COVID-19. The president, his family, their entourage, maskless on multiple occasions. We've seen them traveling. We've seen them at rallies. Do you anticipate more cases coming?
7: Uh, it would not be surprising if you saw more cases. I think besides uh, remembering that we, we're we all interested in making sure the president recovers well from this infection and all of the rest of the staff uh, can recover from infection as well. It's important that the contact tracing gets into full gear right now to really identify who has been exposed, who is infected, put them into isolation, and to lower the number of cases that are going to occur within the White House. Obviously, White House is incredibly important um, uh, in terms of our federal government, and there has to be an active method going out there right now to identify all the individuals potentially infected, isolate them, test them. And then go forward with, uh, with being able to resume some level of, of activity there. I will mention one thing, no, none of the interventions that we use for COVID-19 is 100% effective. It's the combination of masking, social distancing, no large events, and then testing when appropriate. All of those things together give us a high confidence of being able to identify and contain the virus. But no
0: one of those things alone um, is enough to give us a high level of protection. And those kinds of uh, guidances have implications, not just for the workings of the White House, but for the campaign going forward. Now, just uh, less than just about a month away now. Andy Pekosch, professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We get your, free, uh, your insights frequently on Bloomberg Daybreak, and we thank you for providing the, uh, to us uh, this morning as well. Coming up in the minutes ahead on this Bloomberg Daybreak Special Report, we will continue to look at the fallout within the walls of the White House, how the executive branch plans to push on as the commander-in-chief receives treatment. I'm Nathan Hager, alongside Amy Morris and Michael Barr. It is 639 on Wall Street. This is Bloomberg. This is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. It's 645 on Wall Street. I'm Nathan Hager.
1: I'm Amy Morris. President Trump has been admitted to the hospital to be treated for COVID-19, a development that threatens to upend operations at the White House in coming days. We'll get more on that in just a moment. But first, the latest on the health of the president. For that, we're joined live by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Michael.
2: Thank you very much, Amy. Stricken by COVID-19, a feverish and fatigued President Donald Trump was flown to a military hospital where he is being given remdesivir therapy after being injected with an experimental drug combination in a treatment at the White House. The president released a video thanking people for their support and saying he was going to Walter Reed as a precaution.
6: I think I'm doing very well, but we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well.
2: It is now said that former Trump campaign manager Kelly Ann Conway has tested positive for the virus. Global News, 24 hours a day, on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg. Nathan. Okay Michael, thank you. While the president receives treatment at Walter Reed, there
0: are questions about how the executive branch may function if his condition worsens. And to discuss that, we're pleased to bring in this morning Wendy Schiller, chair of the political science department at Brown University. Great as always to speak with you, Professor Schiller. And as we heard from Michael Barr, it's not just the president, it's Kellyanne Conway. A number of other White House aides and Trump campaign aides have tested positive for the coronavirus. Hope Hicks, senators among them. What is your level of concern about the functioning of the government going forward?
8: Well, I mean, I, I, we have a you know sort of robust, very large infrastructure in the federal government. So the bureaucracy, which sort of runs all, not sort of, does run uh, all of these programs that we rely on, that's functioning. You know, that's a civil service operation. There's millions of people in the federal bureaucracy. So in terms of making sure Social Security goes out, it's usually direct deposit, things like Medicare reimbursement, um, the things that we really need, the military, I, I'm not concerned at the moment about that infrastructure. But I am concerned about information transparency. It's really important that the leaders of Congress, both the Democrats and the Republicans, are fully informed about the president's condition and certainly fully informed about vice President. Pence's um, readiness and, uh, you know, how how much Pence is being briefed on everything. For example, as the Secretary of Defense, making sure to brief um, Vice President Pence right now, Uh, you know, how much of that has shifted to Pence, whereas it normally would be directed at the president or is the president full on, you know, continuing to receive information and briefings and not yet bringing Pence in at that level.
1: Professor Schiller, I like what you said about transparency. I'd like to um, sort of build on that that's all right. There are plenty of rumors and speculation, even conspiracy theories that are floating around the internet because internet. So let's separate that fact from fiction. Do you see this moving the needle when it comes to, say, voter turnout?
8: Amy, that's a really good question. You know, elections are run by states, and they're administered and counted, obviously, and, you know, protected by states and county and local election officials. The federal government actually has very little to do with the mechanics of voting and certainly the counting of voting. So what we want to think about is what's going on at the state level. But I think it's of concern uh, Republican senators, for example, have tested positive. Mike Lee, obviously we know about, but Tom Tillis, who's in a very, very tight race in North Carolina, sort of fighting for his political life, and now he's off the campaign trail for a while. Will you start to see cries for delaying the election uh, in in certain states, especially where GOP senators are vulnerable, you know, that that concerns me. I mean, the, the idea that we would have to delay the election because millions, well, thousands, at least millions of people actually have already voted. They've already sent their ballots back. And now we have early voting starting. they already started in Minnesota and Michigan, for example, starts next week, I believe, in Iowa, Ohio, Nevada. So the election is happening and uh, any cries to stop the election. That would that would start to concern me.
0: And it would take uh, a lot more than just a flip of the switch to delay the election, right? I mean, just the logistical challenge alone would be uh, daunting, wouldn't it?
8: Yeah, Nathan, there's a constitutional reason, you know, the president can't delay the election, for example. And yeah, it's just impossible because what would you do with everybody who's already voted? This is why people talk about early voting and they talk about the fact that either you vote, everybody votes on November 3rd with the same information or everybody's voting at a different time with different levels of information. And that's true this year, especially true this year because of mail and ballot and early in-person voting. So yeah, everybody's voting on a different day with different information. People voted before the president tested positive and was hospitalized. And, you know, we're all hoping he recovers. And people will may say, I'm going to wait. Now I'm not going to cast my ballot until I see what happens to President Trump, because maybe I want Pence, maybe I don't want Pence. So there's a great deal of uncertainty, and I think that's what's starting to concern everybody, right? Uncertainty is bad for markets, it's bad for business, it's bad for voters. Uh, so I think everybody's hoping that we see that the president's treated and starts to improve, uh, whether it becomes a long-standing campaign issue. That idea, with, with constant voting, the idea that it becomes an issue for November, I don't think that operates this year. I think it's an issue
1: now. We're talking with Wendy Schiller, Chair of Political Science at Brown University. And Professor, also wanted to ask you about historical perspective. Do you have anything in your memory banks or in history that can sort of give us a roadmap as to how all of this is going to play out?
8: You know, I I was just saying to myself last night, I have never witnessed anything like this. Right. I mean, obviously, there's concern. The president of the United States is hospitalized and we know that covid can progress in all sorts of directions. It can get better. They can get worse. Sometimes people are put on ventilators, in which case they have to be sedated. So, you know, these are scary times, very uncertain times. But the fundamental issue of covid politically um, is something we've been living with for a very long time, and was obviously Biden made a big issue of during the debate, and Trump made fun of him for wearing a mask. You know, I hope Trump recovers. But in that sense, you think this just reminds voters that the president did not do a very good job on COVID, uh, from public messaging to mask wearing uh, to containment. And whether you think that's fair or not, this just really drives that issue home for voters in a really real way right now.
0: And it raises a a delicate question for how uh, former Vice President Joe Biden reacts to the president's illness and whether to bring up that nexus of how the president being in the hospital sort of symbolizes his response to this pandemic. What is the difficulty that the uh, that the Democrat in this race faces when it comes to responding to the president's illness?
8: I think it is a really awkward uh, situation for the for, for the Biden campaign. So they've made a decision uh, to stop running their negative ads for now. Or, you know, remember they have a lot more money now, on cash on hand, than the Trump campaign has. So in some ways, stopping those ads now, but if you just start to rerun them in two weeks, is not necessarily uh, you know a sacrifice on the part of the Biden campaign. But the fact that this just reminds voters about COVID and about the fact that not only the president has tested positive and is ill, but many of his senior staff including his wife have tested positive and are ill i think biden's going to let that sink in without emphasizing it they don't have to do much there but it's also a fine line you don't want you know there's a sympathy factor for the president and biden doesn't want to look unsympathetic so he's already tweeted out that his prayers are for the president's recovery and i think biden does want trump to recover because obviously we face a very different scenario if trump gets worse Uh, and that throws everything into question. So I think the Biden campaign is hoping for a recovery, but you're right, Um, it's a very fine line to walk. I think he'll continue to campaign on things like healthcare and certainly the economy, because they don't relate directly to the president's current condition.
1: You mentioned all of the people, the senior staff, uh, some of the senators who have been diagnosed with uh, the coronavirus now. There's a lot going on right now. You've got a Supreme Court nominee. You've got uh, the stimulus that is pending, um, not to mention the, what is going on with the economy, uh, jobs, uh, the uh, Wall Street. There's a lot happening right now. How does the administration at this point ensure that the business of government continues while the president's being treated?
8: Well, that's really up to the president, right? I mean, if he will not relinquish temporary power to Pence, I think things get very complicated, for example, if they try to issue any executive orders while he's under treatment for COVID. One might go to the courts and say, you know, the president's not uh, healthy, he's not in the right mind, he shouldn't be doing this. Uh, My understanding is that the Trump administration has promised more ICE raids in the next couple of weeks uh, against people who are undocumented. We'll see if that goes through and whether that's challenged. And there's procedural rules in the Senate, for example, on quorum, and we've got somebody who's on the Senate Judiciary Committee in the Republican Party who's tested positive, who can't be. So the question is, will the Republicans just ignore that rule, too, and just shove this nomination through after a ceremony in which people were infected, including the president of Notre Dame? So I think it's just bad optics for the Republicans all around. And I think there are real questions about anything that comes out of the administration in the next week, you know, issued by the president, given that we just don't know what the president's state of mind is right now.
0: Of course, the uh, White House has said that the president won't relinquish his powers and will continue to perform the functions of the presidency uh, within Walter Reed at the presidential offices there. Are you confident that he'll be able to do that and that, as you say, that uh, Congress will be able to perform its functions potentially remotely uh, as possibly this, uh, this outbreak continues to spread?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Congress right now, I think, can function. The question is, um, because, because of the specifics of who sits on which committee and the particular rules of the United States Senate, it may be that the Republicans have to blatantly ignore the, the rules of the chamber to get this nominee through, which I think becomes a bigger problem for them. So can they function? Yes. Can they function on the timeline that they have promised? Not necessarily. And that's going to be up to Mitch McConnell and the Republican leadership in the Senate. Uh, as far as As the president goes, if somebody's on, we've all, you know, let's say you have surgery or something and you have anesthesia or you're on painkillers or you're not feeling all that well. You know, these are national security and, and, and sometimes life and death decisions. You'd hope the president would say, I'm not clear, so I'm going to give Pence the authority for a week. But I don't see this president doing that. I just don't see Trump handing over the reins four weeks before Election Day.
1: All right, Wendy Schiller, Chair of Political Science at Brown University. It is always great to pick your brain and talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning and providing that insight. Much more still to come on this Bloomberg Daybreak special report. The President's Treatment, Dr. Amesh Adalja from the Johns Hopkins Public School of Public Health will be joining us. We'll get more on the President's condition and treatment underway at Walter Reed Medical Center. And Nathan, there's a lot more coming up in the next hour.
0: Oh, yeah, there certainly is, Amy. We're going to continue to unpack the political implications of the president's illness. Uh, On the campaign trail, we're going to be speaking with uh, Bloomberg's Tyler Pager about how this affects the campaign going forward, as well as Greg Vallier, chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. He'll be with us as well to take a look at how this illness could affect markets. As our coverage, this Bloomberg Daybreak special report on the president in the hospital continues on Bloomberg Radio. This is a Bloomberg Daybreak Special Report. I'm Nathan Hager.
1: I'm Amy Morris. President Trump has been admitted to the hospital to be treated for COVID-19. Coming up over the next hour, we examine the implications, the possibilities, and the path ahead for the White House. Plus, the political
0: fallout with exactly one month until the election. That's all straight ahead. But first, let's get the very latest on the president's health. For that, we're joined this morning by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael.
2: Good morning, Nathan. Stricken by COVID-19, a feverish and fatigued President Donald Trump was flown to a military hospital where he is being given remdesivir therapy after being injected with an experimental drug combination in treatment at the White House. The president released a video thanking people for their support and saying he was going to Walter Reed as a precaution.
6: I want to thank everybody for the tremendous support. I'm going to Walter Reed Hospital. I think I'm doing very well. But we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I will never forget it. Thank you.
2: Trump campaign senior advisor Corey Lewandowski told ABC that some protocols for visitors to the president may see some changes in the next few weeks.
0: People want to have their picture taken with the president. And if they were just tested and tested negative for COVID-19, I think they felt pretty good that they didn't have to have that mask on. I think we have to relook at those protocols and decide what we need to do moving forward.
2: Former President Barack Obama put politics aside for a moment during a virtual fundraiser on Friday for Democratic vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, as he wished President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump a full recovery following the announcement of their COVID-19 diagnosis. The former president emphasized the importance of unity during the crisis. Although we're in the midst of a big political fight, and we take that very seriously, Uh, We also want to extend our best wishes to the President of the United States, the First Lady. No one knows how, when, or from whom President Trump became infected with the coronavirus, nor is it known who, if anyone, has contracted the disease from him. Two Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Tom Tillis and Mike Lee, have tested positive for the coronavirus. The positive tests raise questions about upcoming Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Both attended a ceremony for Barrett at the White House on September 25th with President Trump. Coronavirus infections were confirmed among some of the president's closest associates, with campaign manager Bill Stepien and ex-White House advisor Kellyanne Conway testing positive. Global News, 24 hours a day, on air and on Bloomberg QuickTake. Powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr, and this is Bloomberg. Nathan.
0: Michael, thank you. And for more on the president's health, we're joined by Amesh Adalja, professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thank you so much for being with us on this Saturday morning, Professor. The the, uh, Michael Barr just mentioned that the uh, president put out that video last night, and also on Twitter uh, just before midnight last night, he posted this. Going well, I think. Thank you to all. Love. Uh, I I wonder what we haven't heard yet about the president's condition that we need to know at this point.
9: Well, what I'd want to know to really be able to understand the trajectory of of his illness is his vital signs. Is he requiring supplemental oxygen? What is his breathing like? How many times per minute is he breathing? Is his breathing labored, or does he feel as if his breathing is at its baseline? Th- those are important questions to see how severe his infection may be. We know that he got a Regeneron antibody cocktail. We know that he's getting remdesivir. Um, we sort of want to know just in general how things, how things are going and what the treatment plan might be. And as someone who's taken care of many COVID patients, it's, a, it's different for each patient. Uh, some people... Uh, require hospitalization for, for several days uh, some, some people uh, I've seen people get go in and out in 20, in 24 to 48 hours if they just have a, a mild case that needs some some boosting with antivirals and intravenous fluids and, and and nursing care for a short period of time but we really don't know all of those details uh,
1: professor we've heard a lot about the president's comorbidities he's older he's overweight that's going to cause some complications. But is he bound to have a hard time with this disease because of that? That's not a foregone conclusion, is it?
9: No, he's not bound to have a severe case, but he's definitely at higher risk because he is older, because he is obese. And and I think you, in many ways you could say that you know we call severe cases those that require hospitalization, and, and he has been hospitalized. So hopefully this is the extent of it and it doesn't get uh, any worse, but you have to keep a vigilant eye on individuals, especially as they kind of get past seven days of illness, because that's sometimes when the immune system starts to overreact and some of the more severe symptoms of shortness of breath start to occur. You know, we don't know what his chest x-ray shows. Does he have a pneumonia or, or not? There's a lot of open questions from a medical standpoint that make it hard for a doctor like me to be able to say exactly what's, what's going on at Walter Reed.
0: So does the fact of hospitalization alone raise questions for you? And I ask that because, of course, the president has a vast array of uh, medical experts, doctors, a medical team surrounding him while he's at the White House.
9: It does, because you can do a lot more at the White House medical unit than you can in another, in a person's home. So that tells me that there's some concern and they want to be in a position that if he were to get worse, that they were able to rapidly intervene and have everything at their at their fingertips and you're going to get more of that at a hospital than even at the White House's medical unit. He's getting Remdesivir, that's a five you give that over five days. It's an infusion, um and he's gonna need to have an I V in place and maybe some of that is logistically easier to do at, at Walter Reed than, than in than at home. So I guess there's just a lot that we don't know about the the decision making process about why what triggered the the transfer to Walter Reed.
1: Can you give us a better idea about the timing of contracting COVID-19? Can you, or or you can, I guess, because we've seen it happen, but how can you be negative on a Wednesday and then test positive on a Thursday?
9: Well, it could be that he was incubating the virus before Wednesday, and it was just below the level of detection of the of the test. Every test has operating characteristics, and and it has a sensitivity, so he may have had a low level of virus on Tuesday or so. He could have been incubating it for maybe three or four days before that. He, he, tests, he tests negative on one day, and the next day he tests positive when it crosses the threshold. So remember that our tests are not ironclad, and that's why even within a robust testing strategy like the White House has been employing, you still need to think about social distancing and face coverings because there are holes in that, in that strategy. It minimizes the risk greatly, but it doesn't make the risk go to zero.
0: Is it possible for the White House to tighten its strategy further when it comes to testing and uh, safety protocols? It definitely is. Just by having everybody wear face coverings,
9: trying to have meetings where everybody is six feet apart, that that would go a long way. If you look at a lot of the cases being linked to the event with the Supreme Court nomination announcement, you can just take a look at those pictures and the hugging and how closely packed people were together. And you've seen multiple people that attended that event become sick. And the contact tracing will show whether or not that actually was a super spreading event. But by by all measures, it really looks like that from from the outside with senators and and Kellyanne Conway, as well as the president of Notre Dame and, and other individuals who attended that event all infected. And that type of an event is something that you really shouldn't be having in this type of a pandemic, at least in the manner that they set it up.
1: We are talking with Amish Adalja, the professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Can we expand on that just a little bit? Because we have heard a lot about how COVID is spread, droplets in the air or left on a doorknob or a handrail, whether it's inhaled or whether it's by touch. When you, in your professional capacity, see those things like the rallies or debates, uh, what can you specifically pick out of those scenarios and say, okay, that's a risk, that's a risk, that shouldn't be happening? Itemize that for us if you could.
9: The two biggest things are that people are within six feet of each other. There's not social distancing, and not many of them are wearing face coverings. And many of them are getting a false sense of security because they go through some testing protocol that happens at the White House. But you might just you have to remember that the test is only one moment in time. So, so those are the big things. It's it's really, it's when you think about surface transmission, railings and touching things, that's secondary. The big thing you need to do to keep control of these cases is have social distancing become a norm when you have people mixing that that haven't mixed before, when you have large groups like that, and, and also including face coverings as part of the policy in order to just uh, make it less likely that the virus finds its way from one person to another. That's what That's what jumps out at me when you see any of these rallies. It's just or or the White House Supreme Court event. It's just too many people too close together without any face coverings in an environment when you know the virus is likely to be there just based on the, the community level of transmission we have throughout the country.
0: You mentioned the uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, nomination event at the White House last week. Are you concerned that uh, there could be other incubations happening within other attendees as we speak?
9: I am. This is going to be an extensive contact tracing operation, of uh, contacting all of those individuals and, and assessing them to see if they're getting sick, if see if they need to be tested, and then kind of following their secondary contacts. So, so this is something that's going to have kind of long tentacles. That, that's what happens when you have a mass gathering like that. We've seen this with weddings, we've seen this with funerals and conferences. Uh, this is going to be the new normal when you have a mass gathering. This is you have to put things into place, or you will get chains of transmission started.
1: Very briefly, we only have a couple of minutes here, but how can you handle contact, contact tracing? For somebody like a world leader who travels with a huge entourage in front of large crowds, where do you even start? Well,
9: you have to remember that not everybody has a significant contact. It's 10 to 15 minutes, uh, unmasked, within six feet. And because he is the most protected person on the planet, the Secret Service knows who was in contact with him and who wasn't in contact with him. So you can quickly start to decide, who needs to be contacted and who needs to be tested, and uh, and who doesn't? And I think that's what you're already seeing. I mean, at least what we're reporting that the vice president didn't have significant contact during the time that the, that the president was contagious. So the vice president has resumed his schedule. Uh, Joe Biden is campaigning and I, I guess was deemed a non-significant contact because the six feet distance was was kept during the the, the debate when they were together. Uh, so so I think that that's what makes it a little bit easier. And the fact that it is the White House and they have the logs of who he was in contact with, and it's the White House calling, not a local health department, probably means people are going to comply a lot better than, than they do in the general community. But I still think it's a daunting uh, task, and they're going to have to work hard to, to get to the bottom of all of the transmissions. And it's something that could have been prevented um, with some simple measures. That's the lesson uh, at that event uh, that led to so many
0: infections. Really appreciate getting your insights, Professor. Thanks so much for being with us on this uh, special edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. Amesh Adalja uh, teaches at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, uh, which is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, the uh, founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP. That is the parent company. Of Bloomberg Radio. And we have much more coverage on this Bloomberg Daybreak special report as President Trump has been diagnosed with the coronavirus and is seeking treatment at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Uh, straight ahead we're going to take a look at the political fallout from the president's treatment. Greg Valier. Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments is going to join us to break down the situation, what it means not just for November 3rd, but for policy in Washington and the impact on markets. I'm Nathan Hager alongside Amy Morris and Michael Barr. It's 713 on Wall Street and this is Bloomberg. This is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. It's 7:17 on Wall Street. I'm Nathan Hager.
1: I'm Amy Morris. President Trump admitted to the hospital to be treated for COVID-19. It is a development threatening to upend the president's re-election campaign in the weeks ahead. We're going to get more on that in just a moment. But first, the latest on the health of the president. For that, we are joined live by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Michael.
2: Thank you very much, Amy. President Donald Trump remains in a military hospital outside Washington after contracting the coronavirus. The White House said his symptoms were mild and that he would continue to work from a suite at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Maryland. His hospitalization heightened fears that his condition was more serious. The president's physician, Sean Connolly, said late Friday night that Trump was being treated with the antiviral drug Remdesivir and did not require oxygen. More and more prominent people in political circles revolving around Trump tested positive for the virus. They included his campaign manager, Bill Stepien, two Republican senators, and a former top White House aide, Kellyanne Conway. Global News, 24 hours a day, on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr, and this is Bloomberg. Amy.
1: All right, thank you, Michael. And while the president is receiving treatment at Walter Reed, the political calendar stops for no one and nothing. We are just one month away from the election. For the political implications of all of this, we are joined now by Greg Vallier, the chief US policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and we thank you for taking the time on this Saturday morning. I have been wondering about your immediate thoughts upon hearing the president had contracted the virus and was being admitted to Walter Reed. Well, you
6: have to think, Amy, that he is getting the best medical care in the world. And statistically, the odds would favor him recovering. But at the same time, it was a
0: shock to see this. Yeah, definitely a shock, I think, not just inside Washington, but across the country. I mean, you've been following politics, Greg, for a long time. Can you think of any precedent for something like this happening so close to an election?
6: No. uh, This is really uh, totally uncharted waters. There's still so many unanswered questions in terms of you know whether Biden will campaign aggressively in the next 14 days, whether the president comes back strongly. Uh, huge issues, Nathan, and I think that the bottom line for me is that 48 hours ago I thought Biden was the front runner. Today I still think Biden is the front runner.
1: If we could, I'd like to expand just beyond the U.S. borders because we know already other White House officials have contracted the virus. Some senators have. This is bound to spread at least somewhat, some more. Does this put the U.S. in a vulnerable position globally?
6: I'm not sure. I, I think that the generals and Pence and others are, uh, have things under control. But, again, it, this is such uncharted waters. Just to give one example, will the Supreme Court uh, case with uh, a, new, a new justice continue? Uh, a couple of uh, key senators, including Tillis of North Carolina, now have the virus. So everywhere you look, you see things where
0: there are no certain answers. Do you think that a Supreme Court nomination and confirmation process can go forward smoothly if it does need to uh, get to the point where it has to be held remotely because those couple of senators, and who knows whether we could see more, uh, can't appear in person because they're infected?
6: Well, at least a couple of them, I think, Uh, will not be at the hearings, and you can't vote unless you're in person. So that could complicate things later in in the month, no no question about it. I still think odds would favor her confirmation uh, in late October.
1: And let's look at the negotiations over a stimulus package. What sort of yep. position does this put Nancy, the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in when it comes to those negotiations, to be able to, you know, push her side and wanting to get more money in that package without looking, frankly, ghoulish?
6: Yeah, that's a great point, Amy. I think that uh, she now feels there's a chance to get a deal, uh, Mnuchin. The Treasury Secretary still thinks there's a good chance for a deal. The problem is Mitch McConnell and many Republicans who see a deficit that's just exploding out of control. But I would have to say odds for a stimulus deal have gone from slim to, to moderate just in the last 48 hours.
0: Where do you see the pressure points uh, toward getting somewhere in the middle on stimulus? Obviously, the president's illness has put the uh, impact of the coronavirus in focus. What about the jobs report that we got uh, just yesterday that's showing uh, still a tepid recovery in the labor market?
6: Yeah, it was a pretty mediocre number, no question about it. I think that there's an increasingly compelling case To do a stimulus bill, I do think we'll get one. The question is when. Does it come in the next few weeks or does it come after the election? But I do think another stimulus bill is very likely. You know, a really important point yesterday is that the president said we've rounded the corner. He's obviously trying to diminish uh, concerns over this. Well, that's all demolished now with the president of the United States in the hospital. We have not necessarily rounded the corner, and I think we need another bill.
1: When a president is hospitalized, and we have had presidents hospitalized before, you find the rumors and the speculation and the conspiracy theories. Can we separate fact from fiction? Can you see how this would move the needle when it comes to, say, voter turnout or voter sympathy uh, for this administration? Where do you see this going?
6: Well, you know, you make a good point. I think there could be voter sympathy. Uh, When Ronald Reagan was shot in 1981, you know, he handled it with humor and grace and came back quickly. You know, if Trump were able to replicate that, ironically, this could actually work to his favor.
0: Yesterday we heard from House Speaker Pelosi saying she was more hopeful that we would get a stimulus and thinking that the president coming down with this virus would lead to a more serious response to the pandemic. Do you see that happening now that the president has been infected?
6: Yeah, I do think that's increasingly likely. I mean, the anecdotal evidence is really overwhelming. People worried about evictions small businesses, their own personal finances. Uh, We are not out of the woods. And if you want proof, again, you've got the president in the hospital. So I do think a deal is coming. I just don't know when.
0: And we'll have to keep following it for now. Uh, Clock is ticking till Election Day. Greg Vallier, Chief U.S. Policy Strategist, AGF Investments. Always great having you with us on Bloomberg Daybreak. And uh, thanks for coming in on overtime on this Saturday morning. Straight ahead on this Bloomberg Daybreak special report on the president's treatment for COVID-19, we'll speak with uh, Bloomberg News political reporter Tyler Pager. Uh, He's been embedded with the Biden campaign over the last several months, and he's going to speak with us about the Democratic presidential nominee's response to the president's diagnosis, what it could mean with this campaign continuing now just 31 days until the election. Alongside Amy Morris and Michael Barr, I'm Nathan Hager. It is 725 on Wall Street and this is Bloomberg. This is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. It is 730 on Wall Street. I'm Nathan Hager.
1: I'm Amy Morris. President Trump is at Walter Reed Medical Center receiving treatment for COVID-19. He was diagnosed in the wee hours yesterday morning. And coming up, we're going to take a look at the range of treatment options available to the president and how other campaigns are responding to this. But first, we get the latest on President Trump's health with Bloomberg's Michael
2: Barr. Michael. Thank you very much, Amy. President Donald Trump remains in a U.S. military hospital outside of Washington after contracting the coronavirus. The White House said his symptoms were mild and that he would continue to work from a suite at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Maryland. Reaction continues to come in for President Trump. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says he reached out to the White House to wish the president and his wife a speedy recovery.
5: If there is one thing we have learned in New Jersey over these past six or seven months... It is that we all pull together and support everyone fighting this virus.
2: President Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, tested positive for the coronavirus. Rhonda McDaniel, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, also announced Friday that she had tested positive, joining top Trump aide Hope Hicks. And numerous others. Global news 24 hours a day on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg. Nathan?
0: Okay, Michael, thank you. Let's take a closer look now at how the Biden campaign is responding to President Trump's hospitalization. Bloomberg News political reporter Tyler Pager has been uh, practically embedded with the Biden campaign for months, and he joins us now. Good to have you with us this morning, Tyler, and it seems. Uh, just to be blunt about it, that the tables are sort of turned here for months. President Trump had been holding rallies while Biden was uh, campaigning from home. Now the president's in the hospital and Joe Biden is out holding rallies. It's an interesting turn of events uh, on its face, but it puts the former vice president in a pretty delicate position, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and, and good morning to to you guys. So I, I, I as you said, I've been covering the Biden campaign for more than a year, and and in March it really uh, his campaign really you know sidelined. They didn't um, he didn't leave his house for for months. He was campaigning virtually, and then um, in this in the spring and into the summer he started a little bit to do small events in the Delaware and Pennsylvania area, and after Labor Day he really picked it up and started traveling more frequently to battleground states. But the one the one thing that his campaign has always um, maintained is that they would follow social distancing and public health guidelines. So he's never held a rally. He's never held a, a massive event like Trump had, you know, these big thousand, more than a thousand people rallies in airport hangars around the country. Biden was very careful about, um, you know, ensuring social distancing and requiring everyone to wear masks and and that's what I think we'll see moving forward. I was with the, the former vice president yesterday in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a trip that was delayed after, uh, you know, Biden had his own uh, health scare that, that he could have been exposed to Trump uh, at, at the debate on Tuesday night in Cleveland. Um, and so they delayed the trip, but ended up going through with it. There were fewer than 20 people at an outdoor speech that he gave at a, at a union hall um in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and gave a speech, did not remove his mask once, um, and tailored his message a little bit, was, was not as sharper with the criticism of the president as we usually see, but exactly the, ta- the tables have turned. He's out on the campaign trail and, and Trump's in the hospital.
1: Yeah, Tyler, I wanted to ask you about protocol within the campaign. Has anything changed since all of this came about as far as perhaps more strict mask enforcement, more social distancing? I understand that they have been practicing those protocols uh, all along, but do you see more precautions being taken?
3: Yeah, so they've been pretty strict about it um, for for months and, and even... Um in the past few weeks, you know, ratcheted up a little bit, every member of the traveling press is tested for coronavirus before they're able to travel with the former vice president. All the staff that that travels with with Biden as well is tested. Um, and so since he started traveling, those have been kind of the precautions um you must wear a mask at all time. The events are kept very small. They have those white social distancing, distancing circles. Uh, most of the events are held outside, and they're very careful to follow state and city guidelines about the number of people that can gather. Um, so, so really, it, it hasn't changed that much um, in the in the past twenty four hours because there's not much more that they can do. Um, they've been very careful to try um, and, and abide by all the guidelines for months, and, and that's the signal that we've gotten that they're going to just continue to do that until they're being as safe as they can um, with, with the travel. Let's
0: take a look at the Biden campaign strategy going forward with just about a month left until Election Day. Of course, the Biden campaign has uh, pulled down uh, negative ads for now. Is it just for now, or what are you hearing about uh, how the, uh, the response could go uh, as the hospitalization of the president continues?
3: Right. I think it's hard to say exactly how, you know, the the negative ad piece of it will play. They're watching this situation unfold with the rest of us in terms of how serious the president's diagnosis is and and how long he'll remain in the hospital. Right now, the White House is saying a few days. if he leaves the hospital, maybe we'll see those negative ads come back. The campaign has not signaled either way. But I, but I think the, the biggest change for Biden is just the way that he needs to navigate messaging for months. He's hammered Trump over his mis, what he calls mismanagement of this coronavirus response um, and, and really criticizing him for not following these guidelines, not wearing a mask not social distancing, and, and overall just not taking the virus seriously. I think we saw the stark contrast just on Thursday night. Both Biden and Trump filmed videos for the, the Al Smith dinner in New York City, and, and Trump said the virus is—we're is, in, we're in almost in the clear. The virus is, you know, going to be behind us shortly. And and, and, and Biden said, this is a really difficult moment for America. And I think these contrasting messages emphasize, you know, the different ways that they've handled this— and now that Trump has contrasted the virus, Biden is, is telling a little bit more carefully, you know, uh, reiterating the importance of public health guidelines, um, while also, you know, being clear that, that he feels the president has not always followed the guidelines that his whole health, health team and, and government departments have set.
1: Uh, Very briefly, Tyler, you did have a story on the Bloomberg terminal. You were able to get a scoop on the prep for the vice presidential debate coming up on Tuesday. Is there anything changing now from that prep work that you have seen for that debate now that the president has been diagnosed? Got about a minute here.
3: Yeah. So the biggest change just happened last night is the debate commission agreed to uh, keep Kamala Harris and Mike Pence further apart, um, moving from seven feet to 12 feet. So that was something that that the Biden-Harris campaign wanted to keep even more distance between the candidates. Um, And and it seems like all parties agreed to that. Um, So we'll see Wednesday night uh, Kamala Harris and Mike Pence take the stage in Salt Lake City um, and be a little bit further apart than uh, initially planned.
0: And just very quickly here, Tyler, I mean, th- this uh, diagnosis for the president puts a lot more focus on this vice presidential debate in just a couple of days.
3: hundred percent. I think usually the vice presidential debate is, is not nearly as, as as highly watched as the presidential debate. But given that we don't even know if there will be able to be more presidential debates between Biden and Trump as the president recovers, I think a lot of attention are going to be on on Harris and Pence as they kind of spar um, defending their own records, but also the people at the top of the ticket that they're hoping to serve with uh, for Pence again and for Harris for for a new term with with Biden.
0: So many questions, and so many issues uh, in focus as uh, we head. Uh, closer to that vice presidential debate with the president, of course, potentially watching from the sidelines here uh, as he continues to recover from coronavirus at Walter Reed. Bloomberg News political reporter Tyler Pager, thank you again for being with us this morning. And as we continue this special report on Bloomberg Daybreak, we will continue to watch the fallout for the political races and within the walls of the White House, how the executive branch plans to push on as the commander-in-chief receives treatment. It is 739 on Wall Street. This is Bloomberg. This is a Bloomberg Daybreak special report. It's 745 on Wall Street. I'm Nathan Hager.
1: I'm Amy Morris. President Trump has been admitted to Walter Reed Hospital to be treated for COVID 19. It is a development threatening to upend operations at the White House in the coming days. We're going to get more on that in a moment, but first, the latest on the president's health. For that, we're joined live by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Michael.
2: Thank you very much, Amy. Stricken by COVID-19, President Donald Trump has been flown to Walter Reed Military Hospital, where he is being given remdesivir therapy after being injected with an experimental drug combination in treatment at the White House. The White House said Trump is expected to stay for a few days. They say he would continue to work from the hospital's presidential suite, which is equipped to allow him to keep up his official duties. The president released a video thanking people for their support, and saying he was going to Walter Reed as a precaution.
6: I think I'm doing very well, but we're going to make sure that things work out. The first lady is doing very well.
2: Meanwhile, more people in Trump's inner circle have tested positive for the virus. In a tweet, former Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway says she tested positive for COVID-19. President Trump's campaign manager Bill Steppian also tested positive for COVID-19 on Friday. Global News 24 hours a day, on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take. Powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries, I'm Michael Barr. This is Bloomberg. Amy.
1: All right. Thank you, Michael. While the president is receiving treatment at Walter Reed, there are questions about how the executive branch may function if his condition does get worse. Plus, there's political fallout. There's only a month until the election. Let's talk about this with Jeannie Zeno, the Bloomberg radio contributor and political science professor at Iona College. Jeannie, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time with us on the Saturday morning I got to say, we've seen this before, right? A president being hospitalized. That is not unprecedented. But it does feel different because there is so much going on. You've got the election in just a few weeks, the Supreme Court nomination pending, a lot of pressure there, plus stimulus negotiations ongoing. How does the business of government continue with the president in the hospital?
10: Good morning. It's so good to talk to you. I think this is Just you know, we all know this year has been so unprecedented. It's almost every day; it seems to be another breaking story. It's hard to believe. It was just earlier this week with the New York Times tax story. It's followed by the debate, and then unfortunately, the president and the first lady contracting the virus. So this all going on, as you mentioned, in the midst of an election and a Supreme Court nomination, and of course, an economic crisis as well. So I do think this is a big question people have: Can the president indeed? conduct his duties. Um, I think I, along with so many Americans, was a bit shocked when we heard the president was being taken to Walter Reed yesterday and you saw the helicopter land at the White House because, of course, we know the president can be treated at the White House and they usually only go to Walter Reed if it's serious. It was reassuring, of course, to see the video where he came out and said he was doing well. This was out of an abundance of caution. But I do think the question that Americans have is that this is a White House that has been a bit slow in the last few days to give information. It was, of course, Bloomberg that broke the news that Hope Hicks was infected. The White House knew and did not break the news, and the president was traveling to New Jersey for a fundraiser that day. So those kinds of things, I think, give people pause. Are we getting the information we need out of the White House? Is the president equipped at this point? Is he physically able to govern? We understand he has a low-grade fever. We understand that he is experiencing mild symptoms. And, of course, if he's not, who is going to be governing in his wake? Is it the vice president? Um, is it somebody other high level in the White House who is handling the business of the American people? And as you mentioned, this is not just about the president. We've got other people in the administration, high level senators, and, of course, people in his own campaign who have we know have been infected as well. So all of those things giving us pause about the question of both governing and campaigning.
0: So many questions unanswered due to the relative lack of transparency from the White House so far. Do you expect that we will get more information from the White House, professor? And what does the relative lack of information we've gotten so far do to voter confidence uh, heading into the election?
10: You know, I I would hope we would get more information, but I am not at this point hopeful about that. This has been an administration that has not handled crises very well when it comes to leveling with the American people. And so, you know, I think we all think back to those tapes that were released with the president telling Bob Woodward that, in fact, he wasn't upfront with the American public because he didn't want people to, uh, you know, experience panic. Well, in a pandemic, the president, the White House, the administration has to level with the American public. So it's indicative of what I think is making people you know, a, a bit concerned that at this point is the president mildly ill or is it something more serious they're not telling us? We don't know. I think another concern is that the president, of course, is very much in charge of this White House and in charge of the campaign. And if he is not able to do that, who do they feel who fills those shoes? Can anybody in the campaign sense? I don't think anybody can. In the governing sense, I, I would assume it would be the chief of staff or more importantly, the vice president. And yet that there's a constitutional way in which that designation is made. And obviously, as far as we know, um, that has not been made yet. Leads us to believe the president is still working from Walter Reed and is able to do that. But again, not a lot of confidence in the ability or the willingness of the White House to be upfront about that at this point. And of course, from a human perspective, they are struggling with their own health issues and adjusting to a situation, you know, nobody would expect to have to work under and that Creates a lot of concern as well. Are the protocols in place for them to handle something like this?
1: We are speaking with Jeannie Zeno, Bloomberg Radio contributor and political science professor at Iona College. Uh, and uh, let's put a little historical perspective on what you were just explaining. Because remember when Ronald Reagan had colon cancer surgery in 1985, he was hospitalized for a week. He did not invoke that clause in the 25th Amendment to transfer power to the vice president. But in 2002, President Bush had a colonoscopy. He was only out for about 20 minutes, but did invoke that clause because the war on terror was ongoing. He felt it was necessary. So what sort of threshold would this president have to meet to invoke that clause? Or to your point, are they prepared to go that far?
10: You know, it's such a good point. I believe President Bush may have invoked it two times for colonoscopies, as you mentioned, once during the war on terror and once I think it may have been four or five years later. And I think out of abundance of caution, it is the right thing to do, whether you're in a crisis like the war on terror or fighting a pandemic or whether it is the normal course of business. You know, any time you have a president potentially incapacitated, unwilling or unable, not unwilling, unable to fulfill his duties, that should be invoked. And I think President Bush isn't given enough credit for that. Um, And so, you know, I, I do would hope that if President Trump felt that he was unable to fulfill his duties, he would do that. But let's let's be clear. At this point, he has not done that. Um, And, you know, you mentioned President Reagan. It's a great example. President Bush, um, you know, presidents before them have, have done the same thing. It is something that should be done, but only the president can make that determination. And I think there is a lot of concern that President Trump's bravado on this issue, particularly COVID, but also quite generally, might lead him not to... Not to do it when, in fact, maybe he should. But again, that's a big maybe because none of us except for the president, his family and, you know, potentially his doctors know how he is doing health wise. So we are all very vulnerable to his decision on this.
0: There has been a lot of talk about the 25th Amendment invocation now that the president is in the hospital. Of course, there had also been a lot of rumor and speculation about whether White House officials would supersede the president to invoke the 25th Amendment for entirely different reasons. Take us through the mechanics of what it would take to invoke that amendment should it need to get to that point.
10: So if the president felt like he was unable to fulfill his duties, he would write a letter to the Speaker of the House, um, Nancy Pelosi, obviously, and the president pro tem of the Senate, Chuck Grassley, informing both the House and the Senate leaders. Um, in this case, it's not the majority leader. It is the president pro tem, Chuck Grassley, as I mentioned, that he couldn't serve. And then the vice president, Mike Pence, would become for a period of time the acting president. Um, And then when the President Trump felt he was able to return, he would then send another letter to them and he would resume his responsibilities. Um, If, in fact, the president couldn't physically write that letter, couldn't, you know, or any president was unable to put that letter together, it would fall to the vice president, Mike Pence, and the majority of President Trump's cabinet they would write a letter to the same two people speaker of the house and the president pro tem Pelosi and Grassley and Pence would become the acting president. And then when president Trump was able, he would return and and write another letter telling them that he was able to return. If that, at that point, the vice president, the cabinet disagreed, they felt the president wasn't up to it, couldn't fulfill his duties. Then it would be up to Congress to vote on whether he was fit to retake the presidency or not. Um, So I know it sounds like a very sort of long way of saying this, but it's a lot of letter writing either from the president saying he's going to hand over to the vice president or the vice president and the cabinet doing that on their own. Um, It's, I would say at this point, very unlikely we see either scenario play out. But then, of course, I thought 48 hours ago it was unlikely the president would come down with COVID. So, you know, my powers of prognostication here are pretty dim. But, um, you know, that's where we are. But, you know, very hard to see that happening 32 days out of election from my perspective if things remain as we think they are at this moment.
1: We're right up against the clock very, very briefly, less than a minute here. uh, Speak to the importance of transparency, particularly in the process that you just laid out, how the American public will be able to learn about all of this.
10: You know, I I think, um, you know, very unlikely, number one, that either of those scenarios occur at this point. And I think transparency, as you mentioned, is key. Anytime you're talking about crisis communication, particularly pertaining to the president and, you know, the person who is in charge of so many aspects of all of our lives, the White House has to get a handle on that. They have to reassure the American public they are being upfront about the president's health.
0: This has been so helpful, Professor Zaino. Thank you again for being with us this morning and providing insights into how the government will continue to function as the president uh, continues to seek treatment for COVID-19 at Walter Reed uh, National Military Medical Center. Jeannie Zaino, political science professor at Iona College and Bloomberg Radio contributor. Thank you again for joining us this morning. And you've been listening to a Bloomberg Daybreak special report focused on the president's condition, his treatment, the fallout. Stay with Bloomberg Radio throughout the weekend and first thing Monday morning as we track the latest on the president's treatment for COVID-19. I'm Nathan Hager alongside Amy Morris and Michael Barr. It is 7.57 on Wall Street. This is Bloomberg.